Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a new podcast from the World Justice Project. I'm Betsy Anderson, the Executive Director of the World Justice Project. And today, as the U.S. Senate deliberates on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court, I had the great pleasure of talking with Jack Knight about the U.S. approach to judicial selection, its rule of law implications, and how it compares to the way that other countries around the world choose their judges. Professor Knight is the Frederick Cleveland Professor of Law and Political Science at Duke University, and he also serves as the academic director of Duke's Bolch Judicial Institute. A renowned political scientist and legal theorist, Professor Knight's research focuses on the rules and norms that organize human activities in nations. In addition to the study of the motivations and decisions of judges, he has examined the effects of the norm of extensive prior judicial experience as a prerequisite for service on the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as several other aspects of how courts make decisions and how judges choose their positions in opinions. Thanks for listening to what I found to be a fascinating discussion, and stay tuned for more episodes of Rule of Law Talk. Hello and welcome to the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Talk, a new podcast series sponsored by the World Justice Project to bring expert perspectives on rule of law topics of the day. Our podcast today is focused on a topic of current interest, judicial selection. The United States Senate's deliberations on President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, highlights the important role that processes of judicial selection play, contributing to both the quality and independence of the judiciary as an essential bulwark of the rule of law. Under the U.S. Constitution, power to appoint Supreme Court justices rests with the president, subject to the advice and consent of the Senate. And Supreme Court justices hold their offices during good behavior, that is, for life, as long as they commit no impeachable offenses. We tend to take these arrangements for granted, but looking at international standards and around the world at the processes used in other democracies, we learn that this is not the only way, nor even perhaps the best way, to guarantee an effective and independent judiciary. To help us understand the U.S. approach to judicial selection and to put it in this international and comparative perspective, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Jack Knight, the Frederick Cleveland Professor of Law and Political Science at Duke Law School and Duke's Trinity College of Arts and Sciences, where he also serves as academic director of the Bolch Judicial Institute. Professor Knight is renowned internationally as a political scientist and legal theorist, and we at WJP are particularly proud to count him among the members of our Rule of Law Research Consortium, a group of more than 50 leading scholars from diverse disciplines who work with us to advance research and learning about the rule of law. Professor Knight, welcome and thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Well, thank you, Betsy. Nice to be here. Well, let's dive right in and learn a little bit about the U.S. judicial selection process. Um, If you would, uh, can you outline for us the choices that our framers made in the U.S. Constitution? how they got there, and what what motivated the choices that they made about how we select our our judges, and in particular, our our Supreme Court justices? Yes. um, Well, in the U.S. Constitutional Convention, there was a considerable debate over 
exactly how they'd go about selecting judges. In fact, it was probably the most important issue that they addressed when it came to the judiciary. There was basically a divide between those who opposed uh, a very strong executive, and so their proposal was that all the federal judges should be appointed by Congress. Now, this was, the, this was kind of the dominant state practice at the time, and so it made sense that they would kind of want to replicate some of that. On the other side, there was a debate. Those who wanted a very strong executive, and people like Hamilton and Madison were in this group, who proposed let the president select the representatives. They went back and forth on this for a while, and then Hamilton offered the proposal that the president should nominate and that Congress should then confirm for all federal judges. He proposed that twice. It was rejected twice, but then on the third time that he proposed it, they accepted it. And so that's how we have the system, the selection system today, where you get the president nominates and then the Senate confirms. Interesting. Uh, so how has that compromise worked out in practice? <laughs> well, it, probably not the best example of that was what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings yesterday, but more generally, um, through time, that, that particular approach has persisted um, in terms of selection, with the president um, making the nominations and then the Senate deciding. For a long period of time, now the Senate used the supermajority approach in process of, uh, of confirming the, the nominations from the president. But as you know, over the last few years, at first, when the Democrats were in control of the Senate, they dropped the supermajority requirement for federal judges other than for the Supreme Court. And then in the last, last year, the Republic, when the Republicans were in control again, they dropped that proposal for the Supreme Court also. So now we have a system where the president nominates and then all they need is 51 votes in order to confirm. And how, how often does the Congress or the Senate uh, agree with the president's nomination? Well, in the, um, when they had the supermajority, there were often instances where the Senate would reject a nominee. I mean, it was a minority, clearly, but there were several instances where that would happen, and sometimes it happened on the Supreme Court. Um, under, the, under the new system of 50, uh, 51, it's uh, been fairly easy for the Republicans, since President Trump has been in office, to get through whatever nominees they propose. And thinking about this in rule of law terms, um, how, how does this approach to judicial selection uh, contribute to a, a, a strong, effective, and independent judiciary? Well, right, it raises a, a lot of interesting issues here um, in terms of uh, in part, I suspect that your assessment of whether the people that get uh, appointed to the court now are satisfying the rule of law probably depends in part on where you come down on some of these issues about what the rule of law stands for and what it means and what judges should be doing. Um, on the question of the independence of the, of the, of the judges, um, the system has remained in place, and so there are certain sort of uh, procedural requirements which which give the judges authority that they don't otherwise uh, that they, that can't be changed. But in terms of the relationship between the ideology of the judges, for instance, and the ideology of the parties, that has changed over time. And 
as we see both in terms of uh, certain Democratic nominees and certain Republican nominees, um, they tend to line up more with the, uh, the ideology of the president that's nominating them. That's become uh, partisanship and, and, and arguments about those types of things obviously have really increased over the last couple of decades. So the upshot of that is we've got a system where perhaps the judiciary is not playing its, its rule of law role of, of providing a check on the executive. As, as well as maybe oh, no, was originally intended. No question. Right. No question that there are uh, new issues about the extent to which the judiciary would be checking and the role that it plays in the separation of power systems. And can I say one other thing about the uh, that I wanted to raise about the initial selection process? And one of the things that's quite distinctive about the United States and what makes it actually which makes the um, selection of judges even more important. And that's obviously the issue about, that you mentioned in the introduction about life tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, with the judges being able to be in power except for good behavior, and with Congress being the only one that could decide what uh, the lack of good behavior would be, um, the life tenure really does uh, make each one, especially at the Supreme Court level, make each one of these appointments extremely important. The stakes are Because high. they're going to be... That's right. The stakes are high, and they're going to be potentially going to be on the court for quite a long period of time. That practice, the reason why uh, at the Constitutional Convention they put in that practice, because that was the British practice. That's that's um, how it had been done in, in Britain, and it was also a growing trend in the states um, at that time. Mm-hmm. So it made sense that they would put life tenure in. Now, the, uh, one interesting issue, of course, is that since that time, life expectancies have changed. It's changed quite considerably. Interesting. And so people, so people that are going to be on the court are actually going to be on the court, and uh, the data points this out, uh, actually going to be on the court for a considerably longer period of time than they would have been at the time of the Constitutional Convention. Very interesting. And, and, it, and, and the U.S. system is quite um, now unusual globally for uh, according that like tenure, is it not? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's one of the um, it's one of the very few. There are a few other countries that actually uh, use life tenure, but even some of those that use life tenure create sort of mandatory retirement provisions at a certain age. Right. Uh, I'm thinking of countries like Canada, Australia, a number of others put uh, put a limit. Usually, it's around 70 or 75 years on mandatory retirement. And so uh, the United States is one of the few that really allow this to extend as long as it does now. Interesting. I was speaking not long ago with some some uh, judges of the high court in, in Uganda, and they raised this issue. We're really incredulous that we had um, life tenure for our federal judges. Um, and it's really a trade-off, is yeah, it not, it, between accountability on the one hand, um, how, how do you hold judges accountable if, if – they are, you know, so independent and have their jobs for life versus their independence. It's, you know, that, that independence versus accountability is that is that tension that just runs throughout the judicial process. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right about that. And the idea behind the idea of life tenure was primarily as a way of helping to assure independence. Right. And we can we can see how that does work in certain. Because let's compare this to 
a number of countries, especially a number of European countries, that put limited terms uh, on judicial appointments. Right. France and Germany fall, fall into that category, right? And so you get appointed to the highest constitutional court, you're on for a period of years, and then that's it. Differently, some of the countries that put fixed terms allow for the possibility of retention or renewal. Mm-hmm. And so in in these alternative institutional structures, there's a lot of play on that balance between independence and accountability. Right. But obviously, the more independent you make the judges, then in a certain sense, the less accountable they can be. Sure. And in the U.S. system, so we have life tenure. That gives them great independence. Mm-hmm. How do we hold them accountable? That's a very good question. And one of the questions might be accountable to whom? Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, some people, some some of the judges, I think, see their primary responsibility to be, to be accountable to the president and the party that appointed them. Mm-hmm. Many others see it as the idea of, well, we have a certain sort of, uh, we have a rule of law system, and we have to be accountable to the rule of law system. In the federal system, accountability uh, in the United States is fairly weak. Mm-hmm. Right, judges mm-hmm. can really do whatever they want to do, and we really have to account on their good faith uh, to sustain the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, what many of the questions in the confirmation hearings are going to is is really probing who Judge Kavanaugh and what Judge Kavanaugh uh, considers himself accountable to. Right. You know, I, I think part of it's the accountable to whom, and then accountable to what. And here, I think. Um, we have to be fair and say that there are many judicial issues that come before the courts where there are debatable propositions. And so there is more than one way to decide the case and more than one way that judges would think would be, you know, appropriate or accountable mm-hmm. or consistent with the rule of law. It's not always black and white, obviously. Right. And so there's a, there's an range of that. But the question becomes how far do judges then deviate from what would be generally considered sort of the norm in most most circumstances. Right. Interesting. Maybe we can step um, beyond the United States borders and 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 put our experience in, in a broader international and global context. Um, and mm-hmm. particularly thinking about judicial selection, we talked some about about judicial tenure. Tell us about some of the ways in which other jurisdictions choose their judges. And, right. and, I think um, and what the international standards, what does international law say about this? Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. Um, well, international law uh, doesn't say that much about, the, you know, in, in a sense, about the particulars of this. But if we, if we start to contrast the United States comparatively with other countries, I think that there are probably um, sort of three issues that we might might talk briefly about. The first one would be qualifications for office, right? Mm-hmm. What, what qualifies you to be a nomination to a, as a, to a federal judge? And the reality of this in the United States is that really the Constitution and the Constitutional Convention says little, if anything, about this. Mm-hmm. Almost anybody could be a judge. Um, and contrast that with, let's use Europe for an example, where there is variation, but what's quite important in most European cases they do have certain stated qualifications, which tends to constrain the pool of people who could become a judge. Age, for instance. And two other things which I think are quite distinctive. One is the requirement of legal education, which is not a requirement in the United mm-hmm. States. And the second is the issue of legal experience. 
uh, a number of countries have sort of number of years of legal experience before you can uh, select someone for the uh, for the bench. It often runs around anywhere from nine to twelve years of experience in a number of these countries. They have certain qualifications that they say are prerequisites to being on the court. We don't have those in the United States. Um, in fact, uh, some friends of mine did a, an analysis of justices to the U.S. Supreme Court a few years ago, just in the 20th century, mm -hmm. to see how many of them would have qualified for some of the European courts. And I think it's roughly, you know, uh, their analysis suggested maybe 30 to 35 percent would have satisfied wow. the of some, some of the countries. Now, that doesn't mean they, were, they, they weren't good judges. It right. just means they wouldn't have satisfied those requirements. We have a different process and qualification. Yeah, yeah. And, and that sort of thing. Um, now, what is interesting about the U.S. Supreme Court, if you, if you kind of, again, you look, just say the, the 20th century into the 21st century, even though there are no formal qualifications, it seemed to, to emerge a set of informal norms about mm -hmm. types, of, um, types of people they were looking for. What are and those? The, the dramatic increase... Is, well, the, the, dramatic, the one that I want to point the dramatic increase is prior judicial experience. Mm -hmm. Almost all of the people that get appointed now to the U.S. Supreme Court have been from the Court of Appeals, mm -hmm. U.S. Mm -hmm. Court of Appeals. And so even though there have not been these formal requirements, informally, you know, and, and you can argue both sides of this. Uh, I wrote a paper several years ago with a couple of colleagues that suggested this movement towards prior judicial experience mm -hmm. in certain cases hurts the effort to diversify the courts. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so, uh, so, I, so I think that there are a number of things that can be thought of in terms of this. But, but, but the general point is, over time, there have been sort of informal norms that tend to emerge that serve the same function as the European qualifications. Mm -hmm. So I'd say qualifications is one thing. The second thing, and the general issue we've been talking about, is selection. And in most countries around the world, selection takes place very differently from the way it does in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, some are selected by the executive branch. That happens in a number of countries. But in almost every instance, um, the executive, he or she has to make the choices from a, from a, from a list of uh, potential uh, nominees who've been established by some commission or council. Right? Interesting. So there's an independent independent body that puts together a list from that the executive can choose. Mm -hmm. And similarly in other countries, the selection is done by the legislative branch, but even there they tend to be as a function of various sorts of commissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've heard some Again, in the U.S. Oh, go ahead. No, go no, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we've heard some in the U.S. about uh, the role of um, some some non-governmental actors. So, for example, the Federalist Society preparing a list of potential candidates for the the, the Trump administration. The American Bar Association mm -hmm. over the years has played various roles in kind of vetting candidates. Right. Where did where did those practices come from, and how do you think they work? Yeah, yeah, that, it, that's. I think that that's uh, that's an interesting point. Um, so we do have sort of informal organizations that have played a role in the vetting process for federal judges. For a long time, the American Bar Association had a role to play. Basically, it was a role to sort of confirm that the, the basic qualifications were in order so that the nominees would basically, the, the ABA would say, basically, you know, uh, they satisfy the requirements to be somebody considered for the mm -hmm. process. Um, now, that... Uh, 
didn't really vet, it didn't really remove that many people from the process because the ABA had a pretty wide, you know, range of um, assessments in terms of quality. So most people that had been nominated by a president did get through the ABA. But it did have that role for quite some period of time. That role has really lessened in uh, in the last several years uh, for a whole set of reasons, I guess. Perhaps it was because they would tend to endorse almost everyone that was nominated. It's not clear to me about that, but it doesn't have quite the same effect that mm-hmm. it once had. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the Federalist Society, I mean, every indication is, I mean, in terms of effectiveness, the Federalist Society has been extremely effective in, in nourishing a group of young scholars who wanted to be judges and, and leading them down the path towards a nomination when Republicans have been in power. Now, whether uh, there's going to be disagreement about whether we like that or not, <laughs> right? uh-huh. but in fact, just as in fact, the Federal Society has been incredibly effective. So in some ways, the Federal Society, at least um, when Republicans are, are doing the nominating, is, is playing the kind of role that you see in Europe by some of these independent bodies that are, are putting forward yes. slates of candidates. Yes, and, and in fact, in, in, since President Trump has been in power, yes, that's exactly the case. You know, and there's not been a comparable um, liberal organization that has played the same role that the Federal Society has played. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least not to the extent. Right. Interesting. You you mentioned there were three and issues, Brent and Kavanaugh I sidetracked you with those questions. So let no, me... I was just going to say, and Brent Kavanaugh is a perfect example of that. Uh-huh. It's somebody who has been, uh, you know, from the time that he first graduated from law school, um, He's anticipated sort of the roles necessary and the steps necessary to become a judge and uh, and work with the Federalist Society in that process. Is there any discussion about having a, a, a body like um, there is in some European countries that would maybe be less partisan, maybe bipartisan or nonpartisan right. that would uh, um, put forward slates? There are... Of course, there are um, organizations that talk about that sort of thing. One one group that has been um, very insightful in terms of thinking about this issue is the Brennan Center, mm-hmm. um, who, who's done a lot of work studying selection, and they've issued some papers which do a very nice job of pointing out ways that we could enhance both the independence and accountability of judges in the United States. But, but to my knowledge, and of course, this may be going on, and I'm just not aware of it, to my knowledge, there hasn't been um, any concrete efforts to do that. And, and right now, in terms of the federal judges, I see no enthusiasm on the part of either the Republicans or the Democrats to turn it over to an independent body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. any, anything else to learn so about I think I said, the process? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say the, the third thing, but I guess it's restating what we talked about a few minutes ago, is in, in addition to the comparative differences in terms of qualifications and selection, there are also differences in terms of tenure, right? And so I've already mentioned this, but just, you know, the life tenure, which we have in the United States, is very unusual in other countries, mm-hmm. uh, either by fixed terms or by mandatory retirement. They just tend to, they tend to rule that out. Right. But I just want to get that last point. Sure, sure. I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, I'm curious. If you were a framer, if you were at that constitutional convention, um, what, <laughs> would you, what would you have uh, opted for or argued for 
Um, would would you have well, I, supported you know, our system, or something that we see in other places? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to say. There's no perfect system, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, we can say a little bit more about that if you want. There's no perfect system, but if but I would be looking for characteristics of a system that tended to maximize diversity mm-hmm. in the judiciary, diversity on many dimensions, because the issue is most of the most important questions that go before the court have more than one plausible answer. Mm-hmm. And people in society, experts in society, will disagree about these things. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me to the extent to which we can create a system where different perspectives come into play and work together to sort of resolve these legal issues, we're that much the better for it. Mm-hmm. That would that would be one of the ways that we'd be closest to capturing some of the uh, desirable features of independence and impartiality in the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Only when only when all of the legitimately different approaches come together to try to sort these things out. I think that if we have a system like that, then we could be um, close to capturing what would be the perfect system. Mm-hmm. I think that probably will involve independent commissions, mm-hmm. you know, Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, what, I'm, what I really, at the end of the day, in terms of most issues of institutional design, is try to look for some kind of balancing of diverse interests. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. Because, of course, our, our judiciary is our least representative or, or least democratic, uh, uh, formally democratic uh, a branch. And so if there are ways right. in which we can build some of that representativeness into the selection uh, process that might uh, compensate for that. No, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. If, if, we're re- if we really are committed to the rule of law, then we should be committed to having these diverse interests play it out right. to, see where we, to see where we go on these legal questions and not allow one political party, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, for several years to just dominate that discussion. Right. Well, but then that raises a question about judicial elections. Of course, some of our states elect their <laughs> elect their judges. Yes. Um, is that yes. is that a, a preferable approach to give you a, a representative well, judiciary? That's an interesting question. I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> so, um, a majority of the states elect judges now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so it's it is it, it very common. In the United States, it is very uncommon in the rest of the world. Yes. Many in, 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 in many parts, they just don't understand this idea about electing judges, and there are variations in terms of the institutional structure. Some are just direct election, some are sort of a mixed system of partial appointment and then re-election. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of different ways that it plays out. Um, what I think that. Um, designers of these uh, institutional procedures think is that elections will make judges more accountable. Sure. It, 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 and in going back sense, to that, that's just inevitably true. Right. The choice we were talking about before between yeah. independence and accountability, elections would give you a more right. accountable judiciary, accountable to the right. electorate, but and, perhaps less and, independent. Right. Exactly. And so that, and then that also again gets to the issue, sort of basic rule of law questions. Um, there's no question that the research suggests that elections do affect judicial behavior. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a lot of evidence to support that, mm-hmm. and you and you can see it both in terms of uh, contrasting elections versus appointment systems, and you can also see it in terms of sort of if you do time series on judicial decisions, um, their their decisions can change the closer they get to an election, or you know either for re-election, uh, basically for re-election, uh, you can see those differences. So it does affect it. Um, most of the research has really focused in areas of criminal law, mm-hmm. and you can see um, longer sentences closer to the period of time of, of uh, re-election, that kind of thing. So, th- so it does have an effect. So it does mm-hmm. have an effect. Mm-hmm. The question is whether the um, whether the alternative, which would be a completely independent judiciary with no um, with with very little uh, sort of um, monitoring or assessment or accountability, whether whether that would be better. It's you know it's really hard to sort that out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I should say. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, but but the elections, which is the dominant at the state court level in the United States, does clearly um, weigh on the side of accountability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I should say that we're going to post on our website some links to the, some of the related articles and studies and, and resources that uh, Professor Knight has mentioned. Let me just um, finish our conversation again looking to the headlines and, and some challenges to judiciaries and their independence that we are seeing in different places around the world. We've, we've read a lot uh, in the last several years about uh, the the government of Turkey and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's uh, dismissal of thousands of judges from their post mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. Similarly, in, in Poland, uh, headlines recently have pointed to uh, efforts that the ruling party is undertaking to weaken its constitutional court and pack its Supreme Court with judges who are sympathetic to it. Folks are uh, quite critical of that. A set of developments and and warn that we are maybe in Poland going to see a return to kind of unchecked one party rule like we saw during the communist times. What are we seeing here uh, in, in these instances and in others globally? Is uh, in, in the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index, we see trends and decline in constraints on government powers around the world. Um, including in the United States over the last uh, couple of years. Is this just kind of the normal ebb and flow in the rule of law and good governance and we'll see uh, the pendulum swing again? Or or is there something broader, more systemic and permanent that is happening in terms of the independence of judiciaries? Right. It's... um... Well, it, it, what you've defined is clearly what we're observing, and challenges to the judiciary seem to be quite widespread. Um, it's unclear whether it's just an ebb, ebb and flow or something more systematic, but I think it it, um, it gets to sort of a fundamental issue uh, about uh, institutional design more generally, I think, but clearly in terms of thinking about the judiciary. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we can design all types of institutional procedures and mechanisms that we think will, in fact, enhance the rule of law, create independence and impartiality and this sort of thing. But each of these, I mean, this sounds obvious, but each of these 
institutional forms that we would design. They're really based at the end of the day on the belief that people are committed to the process. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have to be in a certain sense. They have to be committed to the rule of law. Which people? Because the the, the citizens or, or the, our elected leaders the, or everybody? The, 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 judges, the elected leaders, everybody. Elected mm-hmm. leaders, the judges, whatever. They have to be part of it because, because the, the, the rules we create, the institutional mechanisms that we create, are only as good as the willingness of the people to follow. Right? Right. I mean, it's, there's a certain sense in which the, all these things are sort of self-enforcing. We have to, just like democracy, just like the rule of law, we have to, to a certain extent, we have to be committed to it as opposed to being committed to getting our own way all the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if, the, if the actors involved in the process, judges and elected officials, aren't committed to sort of, for instance, the checks and balances approach or the mm-hmm. separation of powers, um, then none of these systems are going to work. Right. Think about the think about the United States just for a second and its separation of power system. It, it's based on the proposition that the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch are going to have competing interests mm-hmm. over certain types of issues and certain types of policies. And it's only that, those competing interests that motivate them to check each other. Right. And when they don't, when they when they either don't think the process itself is important, or if they think, well, I have the same interests as the other branch, then the checks and balances tends to get undermined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, that's a very important perspective and, and lens through which we can be watching the the nomination hearings over the coming days um, for uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Thank you so much, well, uh, I, Professor Knight. This has really been a fascinating mm-hmm. conversation. Do you have any any concluding observations or reflections? Well, I would just say that, um, like a lot of in the United States, like a lot of things in our politics now that have become more polarized, so has the judicial process mm-hmm. in a certain extent. And so, it's clear that what's happening in the Kavanaugh hearings this week really aren't what was envisioned mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in the process in a certain way. And um, it will be interesting to see um, what happens in the next several years. Uh, let's say, for instance, if the Democrats were to take over the Senate next time, mm-hmm. you know, at the, in the midterms, uh, you know, and then see well, how will they act from this point forward in terms of the way the Republicans have been acting over the last couple of years. Right. And those sorts of issues they implicate the judiciary in ways that uh, are quite considerable. Well, we will certainly be watching that closely and, and, and are very grateful to you for your insights and perspectives on this, this current topic. Um, thank you again to Professor Jack Knight of, of Duke University Law School and the Trinity College of Arts and Sciences, where he is the uh, academic director of the Bolch Judicial Institute. We're delighted to have you join us today and um, look forward to future conversations. Well, thank you for having me.